Thank you for tuning in to listen to Saints and Scholars podcast. This particular episode, we are joined by Dr. Crawford Gribben. Dr. Gribben is going to be talking to us about the early modern period here in Ireland, the 1600s, and helping us to understand something of the Irish Reformation that was taking place on the island at that time. Well, uh, we're joined today by uh, Dr. Crawford Gribben. Crawford, could you begin maybe by just telling us a little bit about who you are, your family, um, and and what you do for work? Sure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, My name's Crawford Gribben, as you just said. Uh, I grew up in Scotland, although my mum and dad came from here. Uh, We moved back here about 1999. Um, Married to Pauline, who is from Brashane. We currently live outside Ballymena. We have four children, down from 15 down to about six. And for work... Uh, I teach at Queen's, teach history, and for church we worship in Ballymena in, in a fellowship there. Well, uh, Crawford, you've written a number of books, and some of those books have focused really on the um, that, that, that kind of time period of the uh, 1600s, and I wanted to try and talk a little bit about the Irish Reformation of that kind of, uh, at that time to begin with. Um the early 1600s is such a strange time in Ireland. There's a lot of different groups that uh, are coming in and trying to compete really for the attention of the native Irish. You've got some uh, small notable uh, Protestants that are having an influence there, but you've also got the Counter-Reformation missionaries really coming in as well to encourage that uh, Counter-Reformation Catholicism amongst the population. Can you just help us to uh, understand maybe a little bit of how the average Irish uh, man would have thought about things at that particular period? Sure. Uh, It's an interesting question, Andrew. I suppose partly because it's difficult to know what the average Irish person is in that period. You've got not only different religious groups, you get different population groups on the island as well. So the vast majority of people are descendants of the native population. Um, so you might call them native gales, for, for want of a better word. Uh, you've also got the descendants, a much smaller population group, that are descendants of the um, Norman invaders that came in the 1100s. They tend to be very wealthy. They tend to be focused in certain parts of the island. And then from the middle 16th century, in places like modern-day Leash and Offaly, around Cork, uh, around Dublin, uh, you've got, and they are emphatically Protestants, very much a garrison mentality, very much a sort of plantation colonial mentality. Uh, and then from about the 1610s, you've got the emigration of large numbers of Scots into the northeast of Ulster. Um, so the, the Ulster Scots tend to be, again, vigorously Protestant, Presbyterian by conviction. So you've got lots of different groups there. So it's, it's kind of hard to say uh, what is, what's average out of all of that. Uh, I suppose what one thing you could say, though, is that the Irish Reformation fails. It fails very, very quickly, and it fails partly because it's not a spiritual movement. It's actually a movement of government policy. Um, and as a consequence of that, 
people, men who'd been employed as priests, tended to continue to be employed as ministers. Uh, th- there wasn't a great deal of doctrinal change. There wasn't necessarily always a great deal of liturgical change in a local parish either. Uh, and what what you find is really that until the early 17th century, there are people, there are men operating as ministers in the Church of Ireland who would be equally acceptable either to Protestants or Catholics. In fact, a number of members of the hierarchy were recognised as such both by Catholic and Protestant um, communities. In Ireland, there's virtually no interest in the new ideas. And in fact, by about 1600, so that's about 70 years after the Reformation really began, uh, an official survey reckoned there was only about 105 Irish-born converts. And part of the reason I finished, no attempt to give, well, there are attempts, but there's no successful attempt to give the Bible to the people in their own language. And that's just Anywhere else in Europe, that's one of the very first things that happens in a Reformation. But in Ireland, the Irish Reformation begins in the 1530s, but a Bible, a complete Bible, is not produced until 1680, so that's 150 years later. So that's like five generations there could have been between the beginnings of a so-called Protestant church and actually a Bible in the Irish language. Of course, by the time the Bible gets published in the Irish language in the 1680s, the number of Irish speakers has begun to dramatically decline. Uh, and that brings in, I suppose, a whole other question about cultural change and um, uh, the, the, the ways in which that cultural change is really impacted by and contributes to religious change, um, not always for the better, to put it mildly. Yeah. So there, there's a, a lot of strange religious but even more political dynamics that are going on at that particular period and yet there are some uh, particular thinkers that start to emerge and one of those uh, that you've written about is uh, James Usher. Um, James Usher comes out and one of his main engagements is obviously with uh, that counter-reformation culture that comes in. He becomes a key spokesperson. When it comes to his um, writings. What, what are his main concerns with that counter-reformation movement, and how does he distinguish uh, him, himself from it? Well, uh, Usher is one of that very small number of Protestants who come from a, a Catholic background. Um, so, so his his family is a family that's that's religiously mixed. Um, his, his uncle Richard Stanihurst becomes one of the most prominent Catholic writers in this period. And James Usher, the nephew, uh, becomes one of the most prominent Protestant writers in this period. And I suppose they, they, they are, Usher and those who are working with him in this movement, I suppose are arguing about the proper teaching of Scripture. What does, what does Scripture actually teach? Um, not just about um, the, you know, the, the great central dogmas of, of the Christian faith, but also specifically about the ways in which Protestants understand salvation. Um, so that, that's the first thing. H- how should we understand the Bible? The second thing he's really interested in is how should we understand church history? So one of the things that the usher does is to try to read through the complete works of the church fathers. It's a project that takes him something like 12 years. He, he looked at uh, as much of this material as he could, uh, read through it. But his aim, his aim was really to answer the question, where was the church before Luther? 
So this is one of the this is one of the obviously very um, useful questions that those who wanted to defend the Catholic Church could could hurl at Protestants of any kind. Where was your church before Luther? And of course, the question put Protestants in a very difficult position because they either had to say it was with the Catholic Church. In other words, they had, either had to trace their descent through the Catholic Church, thereby legitimizing certain aspects of what they would also want to call false teaching, or they had to do something much more radical, which was to say that a true church had always existed outside the Catholic Church, but just couldn't be traced through history. So they either had to look at the very obvious institutional succession within the Catholic Church, or they had to this quasi-imaginary trail of blood. So Usher, Usher, Usher then wanted to try and deal with that question. So Usher recognised that before Trent, the gospel had been preserved within the Catholic Church. But that at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church had decided to adopt this view of an issue instead of that view of an issue. So they, they had moved away from the tolerance of different opinions to officially endorse the wrong opinion on several different subjects. And so then Usher wants to say that to, to his Catholic friends, we, we were all together until the Council of Trent. By the Council of Trent, uh, the Catholic Church apostatized. And so the true succession, gospel succession, is actually found in the churches that have come out of that, that separated from that. Protestants were not guilty of schism, Usher would want to say. The Catholic Church was guilty of schism because it officially endorsed teachings that were contrary to the gospel. I think it's, it's kind of an important point to make because sometimes when Protestants talk about the Reformation, you know, when suddenly Luther shines a torch and you know, suddenly Christians suddenly rediscover justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But in fact, it's very important to remember that how Luther discovered uh, the, the, this teaching about justification, and it wasn't simply from studying scriptures completely alone under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. His confessor told him about it, a modern reformed view of justification would absolutely have been recognized as a teaching within the Catholic Church. But at Trent, it was formally rejected. And that for Usher is the moment of, of, of apostasy or of schism. And at that point, he believes the, the lineage of the true church passes away from the schismatic body that he regards uh, Catholicism as and, and um, in, into the, the lineage of, of the Protestant reformed churches. You know, Usher's works are massive. <laughs> he did a lot, an awful lot of work, and uh, you, you know, to, to to see somebody who is such a careful thinker and uh, and some other movements at the particular time, the the Six Mile Water revival, so often in, in Northern Ireland, especially we talk about revival is the key to spiritual health and transformation and there is uh, some movement that's going on there at least in the north of the island as well during this period and yet you mentioned before the Irish Reformation uh, feels it, it just never really grabs a hold of the island and it has no uh, major lasting impact on the, 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 the population at large. Why do you think that was? What what goes wrong or or what uh, from a human point of view is, is there any particular things we can point to to explain why this didn't work and especially you know for evangelicals looking back to that period you know we, we still want to see transformation on the island evangelicals have a hope and aspiration of seeing the gospel take a hold of people what what lessons maybe could we learn 
uh, from that period in terms of where the emphasis was wrong? Yeah, it's an interesting question, Andrew. Uh, I mean, you're right to mention the Six Mile Water Revival there in the 1620s, and that takes off in the area around Antrim Town, um, where a number of, of preachers, some of whom don't seem to have been very balanced in their approach to preaching the gospel or indeed the law uh, before the gospel, really began to preach emphatically. Um, one of them in particular stirring up a lot of, of fear uh, of of God's wrath by his preaching of the law, uh, he seems not to have been particularly able to to follow on um, with with discussion of the gospel with with the hope and offer of of of, of the gospel. But others did, uh, and and the, these were mainly Presbyterian pastors from Scotland who came across to preach to the little sort of plantation communities that were um, in in evidence in this area in that period. But I think it's really important to realise that the people who were being preached to were people who were in other circumstances called the, the scum of both nations. In other words, the, the people who were shipped um, in the plantation projects from the southwest of Scotland and from the north of England to northeast Ireland were not the people that um, landowners in southwest Scotland and north of England wanted to keep at home. They were people who they wanted rid of, by and large. Uh, so, you know, they had a pretty nasty reputation, a lot of them. So they came across here... Uh, and, you know, in, in these very difficult and dangerous circumstances that they found themselves in, um, you know, they, they were, I think, a, maybe a bit more alert to questions about life and death and what might follow. And 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 so then, you know, they, they, they really do get caught up in this revival and preaching that happens around Antrim in that period. And the, the revival becomes um, so strong and so emphatic uh, that actually it gets transported back into southwest Scotland, where... Um, it sort of migrates up through uh, Ayrshire, uh, up into Renfrewshire, and in the 1630s, the end of the 1630s, in a famous incident at the Kirk of Shots, which is a town halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh, somewhere in the region, I think, of 500 people are converted in a single, um, in, in a single meeting. So, the, you know, the revival movement that, that picks up, that begins in, in Ulster, well, really in County Antrim in the 1620s, 10 years later has begun to sweep through Scotland. And Presbyterians are a little bit alarmed by it, uh, some of them, because it's, the style of preaching is a lot more, they would say, affectionate than they would be used to uh, in the Scottish National Church in that period. Um, but I think it's it's what we would recognise as a genuine evangelical moment uh, where people who, who were pretty tough, people um, kind of hard-nosed um, colonial types, you know, the, the, the people, the kinds of people that you would want to send to plant a new town in a completely hostile area in the midst of a dangerous situation. Those are the people who suddenly become converted. And, um, you know, they are tough people. Now, on, on the other hand, the other question is, why did that kind of preaching not work when it was directed at the native Irish? And I suppose the simplest answer to that question was, it wasn't directed at the native Irish. Bear in mind that the native population of the island were so alien to the plant and the planters, for all that they have been, or for all that many of them have been convinced by the claims of the gospel, were still pretty um, happy to, um, you know, n n not not to act in a gracious way, put it that way, and towards the native inhabitants whose land, after all, they had appropriated. 
So there was there was all kinds of grievances and probably absolutely justifiable grievances on the part of those native uh, population uh, who who had lost lands and then all of a sudden, um, you know, lo- lost status, lost land, lost wealth, you know, lost a great deal, and, and you know, it, it's it's kind of cheeky then for preachers from that hostile community then to come and say, oh, you know, w- w- there's there's riches in heaven. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you know those are not the optimal circumstances for evangelism. But those those efforts at evangelism were, as I said, very few and far between. Now, if you look at some minute books of Presbyterian congregations in the 1650s around Temple Patrick, you do find native Irish people listed among the members of those congregations. So some people were obviously coming to identify um, with was it the gospel or was it with the the new community or was it with the new economic realities that they introduced? It's really hard to know, but, but they were definitely part of that community and their names are listed. Irish, Irish language names are listed alongside Scottish names uh, in, in, in a lot of those records. Um, it gets confusing quite quickly to trying to distinguish how the different population and religious groups relate to one another, because when the Scottish Covenanter army arrives in 1641, to try to put down the rebellion um, of the native Irish against the planters. Um, it seems that quite a number of native Irish people joined the Covenanter army and actually took the Scottish covenant and served in it. A little bit later on, when Cromwell comes in 1649, there's also evidence to show that some native men joined the Cromwellian army and fought with Cromwell in Ireland. Now, whether they were impressed and simply had to do it, or whether they were volunteers is a separate question. Um, but, I, I, you know, it's it's very easy for us to have a sort of binary view of mm-hmm. this and that in this period, but actually it's much, much more complicated. Yeah, I, uh, during the summer, I was uh, we, we couldn't go very far for our holidays, but we drove through Cavan and we stopped at uh, William uh, Beadle's uh, grave there in Cavan and uh, just to have a nosy. And uh, you know, he, he's just one of those men who, who've been reading a little bit of uh, uh, his biography and uh, he, he just sums up that kind of strange exception, like wonderful exception, but seems to be a strange exception to the norm in terms of his uh, engagement with the, the native population around him. Bedell is interesting because he had served overseas in Venice as an ambassador. Yeah. Or, or, or with an ambassador. Um, so he was really interested in languages. And then when he, when he eventually ends up in Ireland, he does begin to translate the New Testament and makes a real effort to get it sorted out, but struggles to get it published. Um, but nevertheless, in his own parish, um, he held services in the Irish language, making a real effort to engage as a parish minister, actually taking parish responsibilities seriously. And when he died um, in the early 1640s, uh, his funeral was actually attended by uh, a, a military party of rebels who decided that they wanted to honour this man. They respected Bedell, even though he represented a hostile government, but they respected his concern um, for their culture, for their persons, no doubt. And, and so, you know, he may have been one of the first Protestants to die in Ireland and to have, a, as, a, as part of his funeral, a, 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 what might be recognised as a sort of proto-nationalist uh, colour party firing a volley of shots above his above his coffin. But it, it was a mark of respect and I think also affection for someone who I think 
most people who write about him write about him with real affection. He seems to have been a very warm, kind person. There's not a lot of kindness in 17th century Ireland. Yeah. Oh, all, all, the other thing I was reading about him was, though maybe that uh, Irish translation of the Bible had little impact in Ireland, it seemed to have a, a much more significant impact there in the highlands of Scotland. There, sometimes our little investments can have uh, impacts in the providence of God in other places and other ways. Maybe I could ask you about one of those as well. Uh, do you know, uh, Usher, what well, one of the things he's involved with is the writing of the Irish articles, trying to define uh, at some level what this uh, Protestant faith and movement is uh, within uh, Ireland itself. And again, it kind of seems to just disappear a little bit from from Ireland in terms of influence and standing but it does have a, an influence beyond uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the Irish articles what they were and how they maybe had an impact beyond these shores well in a way the answer to that question goes by talking about the failure of the Irish Reformation and the long delay in providing Irish language speakers with a Bible in their own language. So if you were to compare the Irish Reformation to the Reformation in, I don't know, Scotland or Germany or England, you'd find that the two things that the Reformed Church does almost immediately is provide a vernacular Bible, a Bible in the language of the people, and secondly, provide a statement of faith. So those are the two things that mark out Protestant churches everywhere else except in Ireland. Because in Ireland, although Bedell works to try to, to provide a New Testament translation, although other people work to, to finish it off in a New Testament, the Bible itself is only published in 1680. So that's 150 years after the Reformation supposedly begins. But the Irish Articles is the Church of Ireland's first attempt to create a, a reformed statement of faith. And it appears not within 10 years of the beginning of Reformation, not even within 50 years of the beginning of Reformation, but almost exactly on the 100th anniversary of uh, Martin Luther nailing up his 95 theses. So it takes the Church of Ireland 100 years to decide that it's a Reformed Church. And it takes 150 years to decide to begin to distribute the scriptures in the, na the native language, the native vernacular. Uh, so the Irish, the Irish articles were then a statement of faith produced, as I said, several generations too late, but nevertheless produced, um, largely as far as we can work out under the auspices of James Usher, working with the Convocation of the Church of Ireland. They were very, very, very solidly Calvinist, uh, pushing beyond the claims of other statements of faith produced by Calvinist churches elsewhere. They were also one of the first statements of faith to refer to the Pope as the Antichrist. Um, they, they taught... Uh, double predestination, so not only predestination to life, uh, divine election to salvation, but also reprobation, um, which uh, was, was for all that people think this is a normal part of Calvinism, uh, it actually isn't in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries. Um, and belief in election to salvation does not necessarily also imply belief in um, election to reprobation, as, as we might say. Uh, so so they're, they're, they're tough, they're theologically tough They're also very long One of the longest statements of faith produced at this time The um, Church of England had 39 articles in its statement of faith But the Irish articles had 105 articles uh, So they, they included um, statements that were drawn from 
various statements of faith that have been rejected from, by the Church of England for being much too radical. But somehow this church that spends, I don't know, 80 odd years plus trying to work out what it actually believes, when it does decide what it's going to believe, um, opts for the most radical expression of reformed Calvinism. Well, those Irish articles certainly sound significant in their uh, theology, but very quickly they're superseded on the island by the 39 articles that already marked the Church of England. There's a press coming from Canterbury and London for uniformity between the two islands, and uh, that is adopted. Why do they uh, uh, work so hard to get rid of those Irish articles? They wanted to push out the most extreme Calvinism um, initially, and later on they wanted to push out all Calvinism uh, from the Church of Ireland in order to make it uh, as uniform as possible with the Church of England. So by about the 1620s, then 1630s anyway, uh, all of the effort to put together the Irish Articles, this big statement of faith, had essentially failed, and um, it, it sort of slips out into... The theological void, you know, no, no one really pays much attention to it anymore, except in the 1640s in England, because in the 1640s in England, a number of theologians begin to convene together in a body known as the Westminster Assembly. Westminster Assembly was a big religious council put together by the governments of England and Scotland to uh, try to reform the 39 Articles uh, as, as a way to um, produce a much more biblical basis of faith for the churches of these islands. And initially, uh, the 150-odd delegates in the Westminster Assembly think that they do want to reform the 39 Articles. Within a few months, they realise that they might as well tear it all up and start from scratch. But, but as they do that, one thing they do is, apparently, they seem to return to the Irish Articles as a basis for the kind of work that they want to do. So, we don't talk a lot today uh, about the thirty about about the Irish Articles, the hundred and five Articles, but we would hear quite a lot of discussion about the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that's the big statement of faith that the Westminster Assembly puts together, and it's really contoured, shaped by um, the, um, the 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 Irish Articles that Usher and his friends had put together. So it's a little bit like Bedell's Bible, isn't it? It goes nowhere in Ireland. But yet it seems to have quite a big readership in Scotland because, of course, uh, the language of the Highlands and Islands and the language of Ireland, especially Ulster, um, was very similar, much more similar than they are today. And with the Irish Articles too, all of the effort that seems to go into producing the statement of faith that goes nowhere in Ireland ends up actually shaping what's arguably the most influential statement of faith ever produced by any Protestant Church. If you've been enjoying the Saints and Scholars podcast, please subscribe to keep up to date with all our new content. Next week, we'll be joined once more by Dr. Gribben. We'll talk about the beginning of a Baptist identity here on the island of Ireland.